I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guests, the creative team of Cinemagique. Hello, I'm Ellen Raphael. I had the dubious title of production executive on this, and uh, Pat Churchill was our line producer, and we sort of shared duties and did whatever was required at the moment. I'm Tom Ackerman. I was uh, fortunate uh, to join this wonderful uh, epic as the director of photography. Hi, I'm Jerry Reese. Uh, I directed Cinemagique, and in addition to that, did story development early on and co-wrote with Steve Spiegel. And I'm so excited. This has been something I've been dreaming of talking to you guys for a long time now, and I'm so grateful all three of you could join me for this conversation about, in my opinion, one of the, if not the best um, Disney attractions in the world out of everything. So um, really quickly, before we start, I am going to let our listeners know that we are going to be talking tons about this film and spoilers, and I really want you to enjoy this in its full capacity, even though it's not at Disneyland Paris anymore. We'll, we'll talk about that later, but I have a link to the last show of Cinemagique that was from last March, and I put it in the show notes below, so please watch it in, in its entirety so you can understand what you know, we're referring to in this conversation because trust me, you're going to want to know. <laughs> so <laughs> it's going to be pretty confusing because we're going to be talking about all technical stuff. So, um, so first off, bravo. My gosh, this film was there at the park for over 15 years. My gosh. Right. Yes. And uh, what it was 16, 16, 16,700,000 and uh, change people that saw it. The project meant so much to all of us who worked on it. I just... It's so great to have Tom and Ellen on the line with me now. It's uh, it's heartwarming. Every time I think of the film and I see clips of the film, it just brings back wonderful memories. It was, uh, you know, in equal parts, a tremendous hill to climb and a challenge, but it was also about characters that we adored and we loved working with each other. So it just was a, a such a, a wonderful, warm thing. And it just watching it again, uh, which I did this morning, the the link that you that you sent. Uh, something occurred to me fresh that that I felt every time I was with an audience there is that you know we had all this wonderful discovery and magic that was going on, and there was a lot of audience response that you would track through the through the film. It was it was great to see, but um, sort of the biggest reaction I every time there was an audience there, every time I I was present. The biggest reaction was not the special effect, the visual effect, but it was when the characters finally were reunited and hugged. I mean, the, the moment where they finally are at the end of their journey and they hug, they kiss, and the music swells, the whole audience goes nuts. And it just uh, was a fresh reminder that, that the biggest magic of all is uh, bringing characters to life and, and having an audience feel, uh, feel love. So there. <laughs> I love that. No, I feel the same way about the team. I just, it was, it was amazing to be able to come in and work with people who I truly admired, respected, and loved working with. And can I just say, Jerry, if you had to think of one word, because I have a word in mind, if I, if you had to think of one word that you talked about putting these sixty-two films together, do you remember what it was? Valentine. No, seamless. <laughs> okay, that too. <laughs> okay, yeah, thanks. the stream of consciousness uh, sort of seamless quality is something that uh, yeah. that I think we all kind of got used to, but uh, it was it was rather unusual. 
Yeah. I mean, well, I think that seamlessness is obviously, you know, uh, great credit to, uh, to you, uh, uh, Jerry and, and Ellen, certainly in the preconception uh, phase. And I, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, I think if you're going to do a film like this, which is essentially a celebration of the entire history of filmmaking from the very beginning, <laughs> you, you approach it, um, with a great deal of respect, you, you, you want to evoke those wonderful golden memories that uh, people have had. And at the same time, technically, obviously in this case, uh, the imagery was uh, taking a, a huge leap forward in terms of the intricate interactive effects that were built into the show. Uh, and again, I, and I've said this to other people, I've said, you know, <clears throat> Jerry Reese is probably the only director that I I've worked with who has the kind of mind that can not, can embrace a, a creatively a task like this, a challenge like this, but as well be uh, fully ready to um, manage the uh, in, incredible amount of technical matters that accompanied the production. I mean, it was really not just down to the last inch, down to the last millimeter to make these <laughs> things come alive and of course we had a wonderful effects team as well well and speaking of uh tim landry who was uh one of our main players for for uh, the effects uh, tim landry and amy jupiter uh, I, I he's actually rendering a scene for me to look at right now we're still doing a disney magic together and we we talked lovingly about uh cinemagique last night actually but yeah that uh that, Tom, there was uh, as as Ellen and I were considering who who would be a cinematographer. I remember oh, I remember talking to somebody that was uh, full of technical sort of uh, jargon and and uh, undoubtedly a lot of experience. And but I just didn't feel any fire in the belly. And then I talked to someone else who had a lot of passion and fire, but had no clue how to get anything done. And in talking to you, it was such the perfect mix of somebody with, a, a, like you say, that knowledge of, of the history of cinema, a, a real thorough knowledge of equipment and options, not only for what's established, but for experimenting with things that might be, and, and fire in the belly. I just felt like there was uh, the sparkle in your eyes and the exhilaration of what we might accomplish. And it was just great to welcome you in with, with all of that mix the whole going backward and going forward, which was really amazing. Tom, what was uh, uh, interesting, there's a, a, a few things. The seamlessness that you were talking about, Ellen, uh, we dealt with uh, a, a choice of actually building a lot of things and building transitions into the shots themselves. And I wanted to mention a couple of those things and then throw it over to you, Tom, to ask about sort of some equipment choices to, to hearken to these different eras of filmmaking. But in regards to the seamlessness, like for instance, we had a we had a scene where we had to go from a uh, silent movie, beautiful castle that was in black and white, and then we had to segue into an office building where uh, Harold Lloyd was climbing on the wall in safety yeah. last. And we actually did it with just a turn in a, a one physical hallway that was built, and at the turn in the hallway, it went from castle to office building of the proper era, and we just did a camera whip pan. Uh, following the actor, and we just changed films, changed eras, and there was no visual effect 
it was just a physical build and an awareness of the equipment you were shooting with and the way things were lit in the different parts of the set. But that was one example. Another example was being on the Titanic and needing to wind up in Star Wars. And we <laughs> had the water coming at him in the hallway and he's backing up against the wall and then just the wall suddenly opened. And on the other side of that wall that opens is the Star Wars set. And once you're on the other side, you realize, oh, that diamond-shaped opening that was, uh, uh, that, you know, opened behind him was actually the trademark shape of, uh, you know, what, they, what was in Star Wars on that set. So once you were on the other side of that door, you realized, oh, it's that mechanism that's, that's working. But again, it was just stream of consciousness. And I remember Julie Delpy mentioning that when she had finally gone to see our finished film and she had a couple of things to say. One was that she finally got a good review from her mom, who was usually her worst <laughs> critic of films that she would choose. <laughs> and uh, she said, oh, my mom actually liked the movie. It was great. And uh, she said, she said, I was amazed at how we just, we went from film to film, era to era, and you didn't realize how you got there, but it was so seamless you didn't think about it. You just accepted that in a dreamlike fashion, you were just proceeding through all these different uh, different places and times, and uh, so she, as a you know, as an actress and filmmaker herself, kind of felt delighted by uh, by what we had accomplished together. But Tom, you had a a, a slogan: "Another day, another uh, movie," because we had so many different sets and and uh, equipment that you were working with. So, how many sets of cameras and lenses and approaches did you go through? Oh gosh, I've I've lost track. Uh, but but I can say that we went to great pains to photograph um, each of the eras and each of each of the productions with uh, appropriate equipment. Um, not so much for technical reasons, but it it tended to draw us into an aesthetic. Uh, the the black and white film where we first see Julie. Uh, is uh, uh, was shot in the one three three aspect ratio, which um, uh, you know is, is anybody who watches uh, uh, the uh, various uh, movie channels will have seen films uh, shot in the twenties uh, and thirties and forties, even early fifties, and they, that's what they'll be seeing unless they've been letterboxed. And it's kind of a squarish picture. Well, that affects the blocking of a scene where the actors are going to stand, uh, what types of camera moves, uh, we would tend to use. And then of course the use of black and white, an entirely different dynamic, uh, with regard to lighting. And, um, but then, okay, we fast forward to 15 years uh, overnight. Uh, the next day's call sheet has a spaghetti Western, uh, Sergio Leone. And, and we're, we're, we're shooting, uh, the emulation of two perf um, technoscope, very, very wide screen with a lot of zooms and a lot of uh, very, very uh, genre specific uh, images. So without geeking out too much here about these, uh, these uh, stylistic and technical dif differences, hopefully everybody just went with the scene and didn't give too much thought to that. I will say that it was a delightful part of the uh, creative slash technical challenge. And by the way, I also uh, think of our um, rooftop comedy scene where we were taking 
uh, a Harold Lloyd. It was a Harold Lloyd uh, send up, right? Right. The, yeah. The, you know, the, the clock. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, safety so, last. Safety last. A, an iconic film and uh, literally married a shot. Part of a shot done uh, some many, many decades earlier with a film uh, with a shot that we did on, in, on the stage, all in black and white all in uh, one, three, three. But I, I was, I was delighted by the lengths to which Tim Landry and the other effects folks um, went to, uh, to, to reverse engineer the background. And again, and and forgive me, Tammy, I don't know if you have, uh, you know, the composition of your audience, but for anybody who wants to think about the photographic challenges like we had to get a lens our camera lens in space at exactly the right angle at exactly the right focal length and finally to to put the film through the camera at exactly the same speed that they did blow these many years ago not it's easily more easily said than done because uh, in the old uh, silent era um, before sound was recorded, that had to be at a very constant speed, uh, ca- cameramen would crank a camera uh, within a range of speeds, and there was really no way of knowing what exactly had been the frame rate. This was reverse engineered by uh, our, our, our wonderful effects mavens. Anyway, I, I remember that as a particularly uh, uh, challenging problem, and um, I enjoy seeing it on the screen. And then uh, also, I remember that uh, Craig Stearns, with the, uh, the 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 team that was building that set, had to get the size of bricks and the rows of bricks and the seam, the size of the seam between the rows of bricks on the building size to to match up, so that once you had the camera lens in the proper place and everything engineered, that the look of the bricks on the building would precisely align from our set into the uh, the you know the old classic shot. Uh, it was quite amazing. And oh, t- something you're bringing up there about the the speed. This I thought was a, a revelation for certainly for me and for the actors was the um, looking at the old silent movie footage. We we've always seen it played back faster than it was it was shot. So it's shot I believe around 16 ish, um, but we would play it back at 24. So yep. there's always sort of that antic comedic quality to everything. And you suggested that we go take a look at the films played back at the speed that they were shot so they could see what the actors really did. Um, and we did that, and it was startling to see how realistic a lot of the performances were. Granted, there was more sort of vaudevillian choices in some of the, some of the gesture and pantomime, but the, you know, in showing that to, to to Martin and to Julie and to, you know, to um, Marco Leonardi, uh, various people that had to portray the silent movie footage, they were startled. And they, I think they related to the, the actors in the old era much more directly because they realized they were portraying pathos and, uh, you know, and uh, wistful joy and different things like that in a very realistic way instead of sort of mugging to the camera. And so they performed in a very different way when we shot our black and white footage than they might have. I think they would have been much more sort of caricatured if they hadn't seen that. Yeah, that was much more sincere. Jerry, are you going to talk about uh, Sightline? Because I thought that was an amazing 
thing that you figured out so that things would look right and people would look in the right place when they were ah. <laughs> yes yes ellen it was uh i think we dubbed it eyeline theater eyeline theater yes that's what it was yes and it was uh you know we had the unique challenge in the theater of having elements that would play in the story inside the movie and then have to relate either con continue on a path out onto the stage or be perceived as being amongst the audience members um everything from say in the western uh a gunfight and you see bullets strafing across the dirt in the movie and then continue strafing across the stage out in the audience space um and then uh eye lines for uh for actors inside the movie and on the stage there's a part where uh you know, martin short his character is back out out of the movie into the theater space with us but he is now looking at julie who's still stuck in the movie space on the screen and they're sort of touching hands through the screen. And at that moment we had to figure out, okay, giant screen, um, char characters sometimes are shot very large. Sometimes they're shot closer to life size. It, who knows what you're, you know, when you're out shooting, it's hard to keep exact track of that. And then you're having to look, uh, apparently make eye contact with a physical actor in the audience space. So, the puzzle was how the heck do you line that stuff up and know that when you're shooting, you have a pretty good uh, eye line established. So the idea was it suddenly just the light bulb went off one day. We, we knew we had a live feed from the camera so that we could look at things uh, and either to line up a shot and or play back uh, after we'd shot something. And so the idea was, well, why don't we pretend that that monitor screen is the theater screen? and and build a little miniature stage right in front of it and build uh, the, the theater space so we know where the audience is sitting and we know if you're far right or far left or you're up in the high part of the, the raked, uh, you know, the steep slope of the, of the seating area. And so we just had that monitor be the movie screen and did a miniature theater to surround it and had a miniature person that we would put to scale on the stage in front of that. So we could stand the miniature person on the stage and then while the, we had the live feed from the camera, tell the, the person in the shot, oh, look a little bit more to your right, look down a little bit. Okay, now you're looking at the little figure. Somebody put a marker so that they know where to look. And so we could just on the fly, out, we'd cart this thing out into the desert, uh, set it up and you suddenly had uh, a, an accurate way of tracking how things would play back in the theater, even though you were out there. And I, I remember us drawing a line in the dirt going like, here's where the bullet strafes come up to the movie screen. And then from here on, they're actually in the theater on the stage. Uh, so anyway, that was, the, we carted that thing around with us. It was called Eyeline Theater. And uh, I don't think I've ever heard of something before or, or since. It should be. It should be in a, a, a little museum in a glass case somewhere. <laughs> well, there no, is a behind-the-scenes featurette that is on YouTube, which I'll also I, I will also link it below because it shows a little bit of that design that you were speaking about. Because we were talking about how I found it and I sent it to you guys. I was yeah. like, that's pretty crazy that there was any footage that was saved of the behind-the-scenes of this film. Because if you're thinking about it, this film shouldn't have been possible at all, considering 
seeing all of the films that are in it because I remember the first time I saw it, I literally screamed when I saw Titanic and then I thought, how is this possible? Then I saw Star Wars and then there was so much more to it and I was like, there's no way that this film should have been possible, especially, you know, considering all of the copyright issues, which we had talked about earlier, but <laughs> what in the world do you think... I can was talk the, yeah, go ahead, that. Ellen. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> well, I spent I spent half of my life prior to <laughs> the actual production in the legal office. I'd never spent so much time in a legal <laughs> office, running back and forth. Jerry, I have to say, did draw this entire film out. I mean, he storyboarded the whole thing, and then we hired a professional storyboard artist. I'm not quite sure why, but that's what we did. I would do the roughs and then would hand do the over. roughs, and I would run from jerry's office to the legal office and go no 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 we have to have that film and they would go but 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 and i go no we have to have that film and then i go back to jerry and say we can't have that film and he'd go okay well we have to rearrange everything then and i'd go back to the legal office and say no we have to have that film so and they worked very hard and we did end up with 62 films so it right uh, and you know there there were you know that that the term writing writing the film uh, it, when it was collaborating with Steve and, and various editors and uh, ultimately our editor, Pat Rand, um, who, who took us to the finish line. Um, part of the quote unquote writing process was just, we know that we have to get a certain sort of story chapter across. We want the two characters who are in love to go through some adventure and they're kept apart and then they rendezvous for a bit and are separated again. So we know that has to be accomplished. And then it was just like, uh, ideas of films where those kinds of things happen. What could be a complication that could thwart them, et cetera, et cetera. And then put a bunch of things on uh, the screen and just look at them. And in the Titanic scene, um, I actually was fast forwarding through, just like speed searching through, and then saw the part where Jack is handcuffed and was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I went back and looked at it, normal speed. You see the moment where he hears somebody in the hallway and he calls out to them. And I went, oh, that'd be so funny if, if uh, Martin... Here's Jack and comes to try to rescue him. And uh, so it was just seeing it on the fly, fast speed, going back, checking it, doing some quick roughs, going to the editor. He cut them in. I did temp voice for Martin and cut it together. And then I would go show the team like, what about this? And people go, oh, that's funny. Let's try to do that. And then Ellen makes another trek to the legal office <laughs> to try to get permission. We even, we even had a meeting about one of the Disney films. I think it was Pinocchio. We had to get special permission to use Pinocchio. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a Disney film. And, and but still, it took all Oh, they? The yes, yeah. I remember they, they said, uh, they, they sent just legal speak through the normal channels. I kept saying, well, why don't we pitch? Why don't we show them the boards? Like, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. uh, so the legal department wanted to do it their way. And, and you were doing a wonderful job sort of uh, being liaison. <laughs> but they, uh, But in that particular case, it worked in many other cases, but in that case, they just got a, a hard stop from Roy Disney. It's like, no way, you're not going to be messing with our films. Well, I, you know, I, I knew Roy, and so I was like, gosh, I have to talk to Roy. So finally, we, you know, we pled the case of let's go talk to him. Let's present, show him the boards, see if he changes his mind. Because, man, the legal speak of just saying you give us permission to mess with your classic feature uh, it would be scary, obviously. So anyway, we went to, to meet him, and I remember uh, sort of the parade to his door, and uh, <laughs> he just sort of looked over all the heads and went, oh, hi, Jerry, and, and they're like, oh, you know each other? It's like, yeah, 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 let me sit down and pitch to him. 
So we pitched, and he just went, oh, this is going to be charming. Of course you guys have permission. When I read all the legalese about what you might change, he said, oh, that's going to be charming. Go ahead, do it. Um, and then two, Ellen, do you remember this? There was uh, uh, Eisner came through and was looking at a pitch, and there were there were a number of things that had come and gone. I remember we tried to get Singing in the Rain, yeah, that and is. didn't work. But Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which wound up being a charming scene, and Tom, I'll talk to you about that in a second. Uh, so it was that was a didn't feel like a compromise at all. It felt like a, a, another wonderful alternative. But um, you know, in in putting uh, having Eisner come through and see all the storyboards to represent where we were at a certain point in trying to get legal permissions. A lot of them we had, some of them we didn't. Singing in the Rain was one that was sort of, uh, uh, you know, in the middle of maybe, maybe not. And so he came through and looked at everything and he just said, oh my gosh, anybody who's on the fence about legal permission should see this presentation. I mean, that they would just want to be on board. And so I, I took that as a cue and just went, by the way, Michael, uh, we don't have permission for Star Wars and we don't have permission for Titanic. And he just paused and he looked at the room of people and he's like, we have to have those films, don't we? I mean, we, we have to have those. <laughs> and so we're like, yep. And he goes, yep. I'll, I'll talk to James. I'll talk to George. And, and he worked his magic. I never, I never knew what the deal was. I never knew what any price was. I, all I knew is that we suddenly had permission. Yep, that's exactly. Yeah, we were hanging and hanging and hanging. Yeah, and then Craig came through with his set. Craig Stearns came through with that wonderful set for Star Wars. It was great. Oh, and that's something I was going to throw back to to you, Tom. Is perfect segue, Ellen. Uh, Craig Stearns building sets for the movies, the various movies. Uh, I'm sure people would think, oh, you put characters through 62 films. Uh, it was a green screen shoot. Not so. It, we probably had maybe 10 green screenshots in the entire half, you know, 25 minutes. Um, just a few. Most of them were carefully replicating the same sets that were in the movie that we were trying to pay homage to. And then detailing them, painting them properly, uh, uh, lighting them, shooting them with the right lens and equipment choices. Um, so, th Tom, the way you partnered with production design to, to convince all of us that we were just in those movies uh, was sort of startling. Well, uh, Jerry, it's, it's kind of you to say that. Uh, I, I think that all of us were on that page uh, to make it as close to those movies as we could to, to, to enter their aesthetic in, in every single way, which by the way, um, it, it seems to me that you can't engage, you can't be successful at that unless you buy in a hundred percent. You've got to, uh, uh, you've got to have authenticity, not just for, because some, some, uh, because the history cops are going to swoop down on you <laughs> and, uh, if you don't, but because it needs to be a full impression. There's a lot of stuff that yep. affects everything for, from actors' performances to camera moves to lighting, certainly. And, um, and, and Craig, whom I'd worked with uh, numerous times before on uh, music videos and commercials, uh, you know, and he, he, he did so much he brought so much to that party. Um, we were um, 
also dealing with um, time travel here in terms of, uh, well, the, the, the rooftop, the broomstick uh, dance from Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. Um, I sat down with no fewer than three supposedly archival uh, release prints of that film. Not mm-hmm. the entire film, but that sequence. And uh, none of them were the same in terms of color balance. Mm. Um, well, here's the green one. There's the blue one. There's the, you know, because <laughs> the, the, the film is, is an imperfect, uh, it doesn't age well in, in some cases, even with right. other good archival storage. So the question would be, which would we use? And you and I t- looked at the stuff and decided uh, there was a more neutral version. Now, that being said, the um, oftentimes we were forced to do things that were very counterintuitive. In other words, that and mm-hmm. that rooftop scene is an example, Mary Poppins, right. um, to, to, to take a painted, an obviously fake painted backdrop, right. um, and then to light it in these lurid sunset colors <laughs> that, that would, it would, it would not be within the palette that we would work today. It would be right. too, way too heavy handed, but it were it, that that's, then you plug in Martin short, um, and there, there you have it. I mean, it, 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 but it was that any less diligence or inspiration really from anyone on the team. And there could have been a sour note. Right. And I, I, I loved, uh, that in, you know, in, on the other spectrum from that sort of matching a very extreme style on the other extreme, we had a shot in that was outdoors in the forest and it's when, Poor Martin takes an arrow and falls in the forest and people are looking on sorrowfully. And I recall that I believe it was Technicolor thought that it was shot outdoors and that we, you had taken had replicated an outdoor scene inside of our soundstage for, for that moment. And uh, there was sort of a great joy that you had actually fooled uh, the Technicolor lab uh, <laughs> into thinking that you had shot it outdoors. Yes. I do recall that, and it was uh, it was a, a, a very nice uh, validation. But I also remember about that scene. Great credit to you and to the actors in particular. Um, here we've got a madcap romp through sixty some movies, uh, and, and and with with all the uh, gratification and audience fun that you that this adventure could possibly create and that last moment shooting it on the soundstage um i remember getting kind of choked up i mean it was a very very nice moment between those two and uh there there was a heroic flavor um there was uh, an underlying reverence i guess almost as if they were aware of the cinematic journey that they'd had in, in our film and we're celebrating that as well. I, I, I was, I was very touched by it. You know, I was too. And I, I sure both of you vividly recall this and it, I, I talked to Martin about it later and he, he actually called and uh, called back and chatted about it a little bit. Uh, that, that, that particular scene of taking the arrow and falling and then, then, ultimately his, his sort of resurrection. Um, the day we were supposed to shoot the arrow hitting 
hitting him was uh, 9-11 when the, the planes hit yep. the towers. And our whole production and the nation and the world suddenly was in this horrible uh, real-life catastrophe. And it was such a strange thing, the symbolism of our character heroically leaping in front of the person he loves and taking the arrow and falling and and that around us that history was unfolding and you know we were production was on hold for a while and then when we came back there was sort of a a, a mending that we all needed and i think some of that somehow wound its way into the the character performance um but it was that was quite a, a remarkable time and and marty called back and he said he had taken note of that sort of uh coincidence of of uh events i i've never had a shoot day quite like that one in that um that morning um i the uh, steve steve uh hiller our wonderful focus puller and linda gasco the second uh we're staying at a, a hotel near the one that disney was putting me up at in the valley right. and I, I swung by and we drove in to the um stage together and we heard the initial reports well actually my wife had given me a few minutes advance warning of what mm -hmm. were the events in new york and we heard further on the radio arrived at the studio and as i'm sure ellen well remembers uh there was uh, i well i i was walking to the stage and 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 saw the entire grip crew headed the opposite direction yeah everybody uh, was rushing yeah, to, to the get parking their kids lot. out of school yeah everybody was yeah, running and, and, their kids yeah, and, and, and it was like, um, then we gathered uh, on stage to assess and to figure out what was going on. Uh, the production team were busily on the horn to actors and so forth. And, uh, but, but ultimately, um, we, we held kind of an open meeting about what was going on. And mm -hmm. I, I stated my thought that we should go ahead and shoot if we could muster up the people. Uh, and uh, the studio, meanwhile, decided that that wouldn't be in anyone's better interest or that we didn't have the resources. But um, it seemed to me that shutting down a movie was exactly what, quote, the other side, unquote, would love to do. Mm -hmm. And um, right. And I remember ultimately um, just opening it up to to what would make people feel the most comfortable in the moment in the day. And then I think I remember finally, as, as people went to be with, uh, with their loved ones and, and, and then as there, it became sort of the added rumor of potentially downtown LA being a target, which ultimately didn't yeah, happen, but, but sure. we were right yeah. under the yeah. yeah. So some of that came to bear. And then I remember finally sitting with uh, Pat Churchill and uh, and Ellen, I don't recall if it was the three yeah. of us, but I remember finally it's like, the, you know, the studio had finally shut everything in and then finally we were the last ones locking the door. And uh, and it was a very somber thing. But I I, I recall just feeling so much. Um, uh, so much feeling of, of rallying with each other and sort of feeling the symbolism of it when we got back to to say, OK, now. Uh, Jackie Cario playing the knight is going to rip the arrow out of the chest of our hero and he's going to stand back up again and damn it, things are going to move forward. Oh, and I also want a tremendous to... catharsis in that. Yeah, there was. I was just going to say there was a tremendous, I think we all felt it, a tremendous 
catharsis in that uh, that that day when we came back and finished the film. Um, we had a great group, and uh, they they re- responded uh, brilliantly to overcoming that challenge. Yeah, we, it was. No, it, we came back probably almost better than when we left, which was amazing. And and it was Martin Short that came in saying that he had gotten word that there was a plane, an unidentified plane heading to Los Angeles, which was one of many reasons that we shut down. But yeah, so it was an, it was an interesting day to be sure. Um, right. And I also do want to tip a hat here to Colleen Atwood, who put together the costumes on this show because perfect segue i was just going to do that very same thing all right you can take it from there (laughs) no go ahead no i just i I remember looking at the designs as they came in one by one and how wonderful they were and how you know julie delpy was pleased with all her clothing and and that that alone was amazing that she you know she changed with each costume change and, and that was incredible well, and I think we what we had uh, was it Martin Samuel and Ronnie Spector doing hair and makeup with Colleen doing yeah. doing the costume, and they're they're part of the teamwork to say yes. The 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 approach to the cinematography is brilliantly reflecting each era, each film, uh, and the sets are, and sort of the approach to the storytelling is. But guess what? You have know, everybody has to look. The way they dress, their makeup, the hair—all of that has to, is vividly part of how that works or fails. And yeah, they—they they were just extraordinary. And I, I just remember one that was such a fun thing. Goes back to Ellen, what you said about seamless, such a fun moment, having to do with with uh, Colleen's entire team and us working our way through a, a seamless transition was. Uh, as Julie Delpy is leaving her silent movie to chase Martin through now all the other sorts of color films of all different sorts, um, she comes to a broken window where he's he's smashed through a window and in in his storyline had gone from some like it hot out into Once Upon a Time in the West, and he had smashed through a window in the process of going from one film to the other. So you see her now approaching that same broken window. And she looks exactly as she did as the classic silent movie uh, heroine in the so the chic movie. And she's in black and white and peering through that crack. And then she steps through the portal. And in one shot, as she steps out and goes through sort of uh, shadows uh, into the sunshine, she goes from black and white to color. And the screen widens. And I remember that there was a, a, a moment where she, Colleen had done a subtle change on her hair between the uh, uh, first shot where you see her looking through the window and then the second one where she steps through and walks continuously out into this new new movie uh, where her hair that was sort of tightly curled could now fall a little looser as she moved her head. And, and the camera came up closer and closer to her. So you saw her full figure in her silent movie costume as she moved her head head, her hair sort of relaxed a little bit. You moved closer and closer to her and lost sight of her whole costume. You were on a close-up. She looks up at the sun and then it's like, gee, the sun's shining in my eyes. And so to, to shade her eyes, she puts on a cowboy hat and she just reaches off screen and puts it on. You're like, oh, where did that come from? And you cut wide <laughs> and she's in a whole cowboy outfit. So uh, it just, 
and it seemed effortless. And yes, it's done with everybody in the team just doing a little trick, but it didn't feel cheap at all. It felt sort of dreamlike and fanciful. But I just I, I thought it was amazing how, in terms of makeup style and hair, she could think in terms of doing something that was transitional and would mutate from one to the other and be very effective. And I just went, wow, you know, I wonder, probably not many films ask her to do that sort of thing with her team. And they, they really rose to the equation, the occasion and the equation. <laughs> you know, and I remember her, I remember her like checking very clearly about the final scene about whether we were actually going to do the Wizard of Oz in Technicolor, what we were, do what we were doing there, because she needed to know for the colors of the costume. It was, it was, it was quite amazing. Right. Yeah. Can I also point out one thing with this is because since the, the since the film is a like an interactive experience with the audience, there is always a cast member on hand playing Martin Short to go back into the movie and then come back through the movie. And an interesting uh, thing I found while I was watching the film and watching the production of it, uh, the overall show, is that when the character returns through the screen he has the suit that's ripped just like martin shorts is ripped in the film because of yep. the machete and i thought well these are the little nuances that make this film what it is it's everybody's paying such great detail into every shot every way that it, it, it looks overall and how everybody reacts. And it's one of those things that just sends chills through you because that is what great filmmaking it is. It, it, it's great filmmaking at its, at its best, basically, because everybody's bringing their A-game. And there's nothing that can recreate that, I don't think, at all, especially with this type of project. Yeah, I, you know, the, uh, that moment where, uh, where Martin steps back out from the movie into the audience space... Uh, you know, the, the sword has ripped open the, the screen. And uh, and by the way, the person that posted that final screening sat in kind of a prime spot to to make that all that perspective work well. But uh, that was another uh, time where our eyeline theater and various things really mattered because we, it, as you notice, the, the audience experience is to watch somebody step through, uh, apparently just walk towards an opening in the screen on the movie side and then step through it with backlight and vapor belching through this rip in the screen and step without any cuts onto the stage physically. And uh, so we had to shoot that knowing exactly what the projection scale was going to be and knowing that our humans would be exactly human size at the plane of the screen so that you wouldn't see a size shift when it became uh, went back and forth between a physical and, uh, and uh, filmed actor. So that also was just a, a technical consideration. And also with the Star Wars scene we were talking about, I just want to note, Julie is probably the first female stormtrooper. Look at that. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I love and seeing her shoot that gun. It was great. <laughs> she loved that, by the way. She really dug being a stormtrooper. And she uh, she loved the Star Wars set. And uh, I think she got uh, a, a couple of those panels sort of on the side to put in her house. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> that she just, uh, she, she wanted to walk down a Star Wars hallway at home. <laughs> I was going to say, did any of you get to keep any, any movie memorabilia or props or costumes from this film? Gosh, I don't. I no, don't but I have a picture oh. of me in the Stormtrooper helmet. 
That's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's something that I kept uh, a couple of my call sheets. Yeah. Oh, right. 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 Got some storyboards and stuff. You know, the, uh, I, I just I felt so fortunate that we had uh, uh, such a trooper performer in uh, in Martin and Anna Julie. Um, but I, you know, Marty had to do things like uh, like the underwater scenes. Yeah, and, how was um, that? Because he had to be in a water tank for a full day almost. Yes, and and uh, uh, what was it? Uh, about eighteen feet deep, I believe. Yep. Oh my gosh. The big tank uh, down down at the uh, near the John Wayne Orange County Airport, uh, and um, that uh, I, I, I'm sure Ellen was uh, you know heading the the search for that, and not that easy. You can't shoot underwater material very easily because the water gets really cloudy the minute you put an actor in costume into the water uh, it immediately starts to cloud up which of course is exactly what you don't want generally speaking but you you certainly don't need it or want it when you're doing green screen underwater green screen first yep. and last time that i did that oh no excuse <laughs> me I, I, I did it when i was directing no no actually based upon that wonderful uh education uh, courtesy of the Walt Disney Company, I learned what we, I under, I took, carried forward what we learned on that shoot to when I was directing a commercial in Germany, an underwater mm-hmm. commercial with mermaids uh, about four years ago. And mm. um, I said, okay, um, first of all, we have to have clean water and huge pumps, and it has to be warm enough so the actors don't, <laughs> you know, right. it all worked out nicely. But, uh, but that was a very... Um, Nice way. I believe that was the that was post production, wasn't it? We went in after everything yeah. else was after everything done. Yeah. And you know, I yeah. the, the thing that sh- that's really surprised me, and one of the things that I, I, I just sort of startled me in a good way about about Martin Short is uh, I went to him at the beginning of the day, and I, I showed him the storyboards of all the different angles that I needed to get, and it's both uh, you know exploring and waving to to, in, to one movie and seeing people, and then second movie, and then looking around, encountering Pinocchio and talking to Pinocchio and then t- uh, swimming from Monstro. And so part of it was panic, part of it was kind of conversational. And so I went through all these boards and I went, well, I, I know this is not going to be a comfortable day for you. This is going to be a very tough day. Um, so what's your biggest concern just about the day? And he said, well, I'm afraid to get in and out of the tank too many times. And I said, oh, well, that's that's good to know because I was going to get you out of the tank after every single setup, because I thought that was being kind to you to let you have some time to 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 uh, sort of detox and uh, relax and everything, and get ready for the next challenge. And he said, "No, no, 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 I I'm afraid I'll get cold, and I'd much rather stay under as long as possible and come out as little as possible." I said, "Really? Okay." So then I sat with him and I rearranged the storyboards to go. Well, these three setups are pretty similar so we could shoot them all while you're down and um so he then he he felt much more comfortable knowing that that was the plan and then i went and conveyed it to tom and the whole team and um so he he went in fully clothed and the routine was he he had his uh, regulator on a, a long hose to breathe with and he had a companion diver and once I was ready for the shot, and it, it, I, I cheated. I had an underwater speaker I could talk to him while I was dry. Um, 
So I was not scuba diving too. But um, I would talk him through the scenes and he would shake his head yes or no or thumbs up or whatever to indicate that he understood me. And then we'd get ready to shoot. And then he had to hand his regulator, like take his whatever his last breaths and hand his regulator to his companion diver. And then he had to clean the bubbles off his face because you invariably get bubbles collecting as you're breathing with a regulator. And then he was ready for the shot. And then when he finished the shot, and he, believe me, he did not rush. He took his time to make the shots play. Then he had to, he was so far down, he couldn't swim to the surface to get a breath. He had to trust his diver to come back with the regulator, put it in his mouth for him to breathe again. Um, and I was just amazed that he showed that level of comfort uh, and focused on the performance uh, in, a, in a situation like that. And uh, anyway, it was, and, and so as a result of, our conversation and him letting me know that he wanted to stay down in group shots rather than come out after each one. And then with his tremendous poise while he was doing that, uh, you remember we wrapped way early. It's like there were, there were people. Yes. I I was just, I was going to say exactly that. Um, And, and this could have been a very daunting experience for everyone. Were it not for the fact that Jerry Reese knows how to wrangle a lot of technical uh, aspects without without sucking the life out of a scene. And <laughs> Martin Short is an actor who, likewise, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he has some uh, theater experience, but he, he knows what it is to figure out uh, the technicalities. And then when he's in the water, he's ready to go. I remember that we were out of there uh, ahead of the uh, 405 traffic going north. <laughs> yes. uh, Ellen, is that correct? That's correct. Yes, sir. Uh, we actually beat the day. I was amazed. I was sure we were going to go OT, and we did not. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, everybody was surprised. That, that, was, that was a Jerry miracle, absolutely. You know, another time where we, where we made a day, but it was not quite in that, with, with as much style, I would say. It was, it was <laughs> a harder way to make the day. Was uh, I remember that that you and and Pat Churchill had really done some figuring and approached me early in the day and said, "What you're attempting today looks impossible," <laughs> and uh, I really do think that you need to. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we really think that you need to take something out of your scope. We think you're being too ambitious. And yes, it was a lovely plan, but. And uh, uh, Lisa Campbell, my first AD, yeah. uh, she, it, it, but I, I love that you and, and Pat, though, didn't just say, therefore, you must, and here's the shot you have to lose. You said, this is our feeling is that unless you really plan ahead, you, you, you're breaking the machine today. And uh, so you and Lisa go and put your heads together and see what you think up. So... I went and huddled with Lisa, and of course, my passion was I don't want to lose anything. It's like this is the <laughs> this is the story we're telling, and uh, so she was brilliant at rearranging things in the day and figuring a way to be a little bit more efficient. And so I remember we came running back and proposed, "Hey, here's a way where we've sort of disobeying and keeping everything, but maybe could do it." <laughs> And uh, you guys went, okay, we'll let you try. And we made the day barely. Yeah. And 
I remember you guys came in with a champagne bottle and, it was like, <laughs> and you guys were like, congratulations. And, but I was so glad that you flagged it, flagged the problem early. So we didn't just sort of stumble into it and give us what, a chance to react and regroup. What scene was what, this particular? Jerry, what day was, uh, gosh, I don't I I think I was ha- asking Ellen, what, what day was that? I'm trying to recall because frankly, uh, on, on the photography side, of course, normally I had, plenty of stuff to do and i was not always uh, intimately dialed into these kinds of conversations that you had all i know is that this this shoot came as close to running like clockwork uh quote unquote as any that i've worked on for, and, and then you take into account the ma- magnitude of the technical challenge and it all becomes pretty uh, pretty spectacular but uh, so what what day are you guys referring to? I didn't I, I never sensed any of them that had any more than the normal. I mean, any, any good uh, director of photography is going to be highly aware of the clock ticking from the first moment in the morning until you finally wrap. But which oh, one was this? I didn't get it. I don't remember, but I do remember. You are always terrific, Tom. You always were like aware and you came to me if you thought something might be an issue and we knew ahead but I do remember this day and I do remember coming in with champagne because Pat and I were both going I don't know I don't know (laughs) I thought I thought it had something to do with the giant pie fight etc I think yes yes that's Mm -hmm. what it was absolutely yes and uh (laughs) you know I was going to say that uh um another way that that I appreciated in with with Martin and Julie, uh, on the Martin side, again, I remember there's a, the scene where it's a charming moment. They're together in umbrellas of Cherbourg and, uh, he's being gallant and he's speaking terrible French and she's amused by him. And there was a moment just before he falls into a puddle and disappears where he's making her laugh. And the way the schedule was stacked, the close up of her laughing was the last thing in the day and everybody was scheduled to be gone uh, except for just who was needed to shoot that scene, including Martin. Martin was wrapped and could go home. And uh, I just went, stopped by his dressing room and I said, would you, would you mind like coming and have, having her look at you and like making her laugh? Cause I said, no, nobody makes her smile like you. And he was like, Oh sure. And so he was off the clock, but he came and he got in her eye line and he did antics to make her giggle and laugh and sparkle. And um, and then he went home and it was just he, he just was so part so much a participant and giving in that way. I thought it was great. And then uh, Julie did this. We would do this all the time. But this was like one really tangible example in that scene where uh, where Martin does step into the puddle on the street and fall completely out of sight and then with no cut she goes over to the curb looks down at the puddle and she jumps in the puddle too trying to follow him but it's just two inches deep and that she doesn't go anywhere uh i had originally planned that scene for in that way but her behavior was a little different the way i had in, first envisioned it that she would go over and be amazed and reach down and touch the surface. And we would see her reflection and we would go dissolve to undersea and start the next chapter. And she just looked at me when I was explaining and she said, but wouldn't I want to follow him? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I guess you would. And she goes, I will try to jump in too. 
So she went over to the curb and held her nose and jumped in like she was expecting to go follow. And it was such a beautiful little moment. It's like, oh, well, you know, he disappeared. I, I'm going to go too, you know. And it was just, it added yeah. such warmth and heart and charm to it. And that was just her spur of the moment having an idea. It was great. It was a great moment. Uh, and and uh, there's a, a sort of a, a small uh, backstory to the puddle itself. It it began conceptually, if I, if I recall correctly, uh, it was going to be a physical um, uh, depression at that point in the, in the street and the set. Um, I don't think we ever got around yep. to actually uh, designing it because it would have been daunting, you know, but, uh, but the, and, and, the, and that uh, Martin would uh, jump in. Um, now, obviously there would have to be a little bit of effects doctoring to make it work, but what we came up with, was so much simpler and cheaper. It was basically Martin uh, take jumps, hops up and down and splats into a, uh, a puddle. It's about two inches deep. Um, however, uh, in our effects uh, folks uh, were, would put motion blur to make it seem as if he were falling faster. And then they just moved his body down frame by frame until it disappeared. It was about a, what, a six frame effect. It worked beautifully. Um, uh, no, nothing more to it than that, well, except he was against the green screen. And then Julie was uh, perfectly well, set in real time to just stick her foot into the puddle and there's no and, there there. And I remember there was, a, there was an additional, to get the water element, Tim had asked us to, well, we had the camera locked and it, like, Boy, did we lock the camera for that. Lock the camera, lock the light. Oh, yeah. Um, but he had us, after we did the, uh, the Martin gesture, and as I recall, it was like we made it a little deeper, maybe like five inches or something to get a little more splat. Um, but then then um, he got out of the scene, and then we put on a wire, a they had devised a splat plate. It was a metal plate that had you know, considerable weight to it and had various holes cut in it that we also dropped in the same puddle that made much more of a cascading splash in all directions. So first we had Martin do his physical gesture and stay very still and then walk out of the scene. And then we brought in the, uh, uh, the metal plate, hung it, everybody got out of the shot except for that and then let that do a splash and then continued with Julie uh, doing her part of the scene and then married them all together. Um, and as I recall, when we were doing uh, I forget whether it was color timing or mix or something. Uh, there were people, again, in the industry going, how did you guys do that? And uh, it was sort of nice to have industry experts uh, a little bit uh, mystified, which was, was kind of fun. That and scene I looked really complicated to do because I was, even looking back at it, I kind of was like, how did they do that? I literally thought you built something underneath it that was like a trap door. So once he fell through, you could shut it and then Julie could could, could still continue the scene since it was like a one take scene. But obviously yeah, not. And water, and water was not as good in CG in those days. So a good deal of that was physical water that we got with that stack of the metal plate splash thing that was, was comped in as well. It was an interesting uh, time for this film to come out because there was a little bit of CG going on, but it wasn't to the extent it is now. So technically, most of the things we see in that film 
are very much the the movie magic that you guys very can produce. Yeah, you're, well, you're absolutely right. But I want I want to blow uh, the uh, uh, the hero whistle on behalf of the effects people too, because the success of that shot um, was actually in the basic fundamental decisions that were taken in 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 executing it. Yep. Um, that that uh, basically and and working backwards from the famous metal plate that uh, Jerry just mentioned, um, that pr- produced a splash that was uh, that you could buy. That was as it, it replicated what a human would probably, uh, you know, how how a human would would splash if there mm-hmm. were a deep puddle <laughs> in the gutter. And um, I mean, a, a big puddle that, that could consume a human. But mm-hmm. the fact is that, that there, and this is true of all effects, if you're asking an audience to buy how a grown man can disappear into a, a puddle that, forget about how narrow, I mean, how, uh, how, how deep it is, but it's about, you know, a foot and a half wide <laughs> and sort of what, what the dynamics of that are. And then, of course, uh, how, how to keep it a um, a light comedic moment as opposed to uh, this is the way a guy drowns in the street. You know, there are all these very fragile elements that have to be married together technically and creatively. So again, I think uh, you've all said it very succinctly. This just flat out worked. And it was in defiance of how did they do it. It was just something that worked. Yeah, and it, uh, um, it it was just wonderful to see so many of those things fall together. And when you have a team where so many different players are are have come to the party to bring bring something extra and to bring creativity and invention, and as well as as uh, experience, uh, so that you're you're building on what you know, but you're exploring new territory uh, together. It's just it's pretty magical. And you know, something else I was going to mention, Tammy, you were talking about the the movie being feeling so real and and uh physical and not affects e in the bad way um that john when john moyo our stunt coordinator was working with the the teams we had some some pretty big real physical effects things that were that that as they appeared to happen they really did happen like the flight of the arrow the point of view through all a bunch of soldiers fighting and people on horseback and it was heading towards Julie, the point of view of the arrow, that actually was a physical cable cam uh, that was moving on a line towards her through all of that activity. And uh, it all happened at the same time. So that was a that was a, a lot of prep and a lot of coordination. And uh, on on the set, it was as spectacular as it was in the film because we really, really did that stuff. Well, I was just going to say, speaking of stunts, Mm -hmm. because you have that whole sword fighting segment, but then you also have the Western gun shootout where some people (laughs) are falling off roofs and getting shot. So uh, how long did it take to walk through those stunts just to make sure everything was rehearsed, everything was safe, you know, how to insert Martin into those scenes? (laughs) Well, I remember, I remember Marty specifically, there was, there's a big shot where it has to to be, uh, you know, the gun battle where they're trying to shoot him uh, and some of the bullets strafe out onto the stage in the theater. So that was that we knew we had to have that moment because it married both both uh, dimensions. And uh, so we'd worked out squibs and that would go off in the ground. They're little uh, uh, small explosive things 
that you bury in the dirt, plus uh, people just off screen that were very experienced marksmen with uh, the equivalent of paint, paint gun pellet things that would come in and, and uh, hit in the dirt as well. And uh, so we set it up and Marty comes up to me and he goes, so Jer, just wondering how I'm supposed to go in through this gun battle and not sort of blind myself with the squibs blowing up into my eyes. So, <laughs> so I said, well, I'll run through a take. And we had, had planned this. So I actually did the scene with them putting off all the explosive squibs uh, and shooting the thing. <laughs> and uh, so I showed him the path. And so I walked out and said, like that and he was like okay let's go but he was like <laughs> did you was film like, did you film you doing the scene i really would have loved to see that <laughs> well i know it went on video but i'm not yeah, sure if it went on to somewhere. film <laughs> but <laughs> so jer exactly how that's a really good impression <laughs> but uh but yeah there was a there's a lot of planning and john brought some um, john Moe brought uh some team members from from his group that were just uh, really seasoned uh, stunt people. And by the way, I mean, not that the audience has to know this, but but it was like 106 degrees out there. And when we had Martin fall in the dirt and face up in the sun, I mean, it was like 106 uh, in the sun. And poor guy, when he was doing the the eye darts, looking around, I think we got. As many takes as were possible until he just could not look anymore because his eyes were watering so much in the brightness. And to fill shadows out there, not only it's 106, but then we had to do reflectors to fill shadows. So he was, it's like, by the way, we want to shine bright lights in your eyes while you're in 160 degrees in the desert. Um, and also we built that, uh, the Western town that you saw out there. Was that, that was, there was nothing there and Craig built it and we shot, and then we had to take it down. So that yep. was our, our town. Was, yes, and every Disney executive was out there with us for some reason that I'm not quite sure of. <laughs> they all wanted to go to the western town. I wish we could have left it there and made it yeah. just some kind of mysterious thing to discover. Yeah, no, that was quite... That I would quite... hope they'd want to go ahead and visit that set. I, I would have wanted to be there every day that you guys shot if I was a Disney executive. I'd been like, oh my gosh, we're bringing back these these films that probably will never resurface again in the cinema universe. So, But it really was 106 out. It was really hot. Oh, man. Yes. I was like, okay. Where was that shot again? Was that on our... Was that... Was that on the Disney Ranch way, or no? No, that was way out in Lancaster, right? Yep, we were mm -hmm. all the way. You know, it's it's a hard to find a place where you, you know you look at the films you're matching and you say, well, yes, it's the uh, the Sergio Leone Western, and you can look all the way to the horizon, and there's it's just desolate, and it's you go, well, where do I find that here? And we had to go way the heck out into Lancaster Palmdale to, to find a place where you could just point the camera almost any direction and just see all the way to the horizon, a nice flat horizon that uh, with nothing interrupting it that looked civilized. I remember the only thing we had to do was be careful. of. Occasionally there were like uh, B-52 bombers for some reason, the old yeah. like long wing, slow flying things that we'd occasionally see. And we'd like, oh, hold the shot, wait for the B-52 to leave. Wow. <laughs> Some kind of Air Force base out there, I'm sure. So what was the final reaction from cast and crew once everybody saw the film before it was shown to the audiences? 
Oh, it's well, just, I think uh, everyone is. Uh, I, I, I think everyone was uh, absolutely transfixed, and not that they had not been aware of the painstaking uh, work that all were contributing, but you know, it, it's 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 still a um, making any film is a leap of faith, right? And often the crew, because they've got their own agenda. Uh, that dominates uh, each each day. Um, it, it's hard to have the over overview, you know, the, the the big picture. And in this case, the 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 picture was very big indeed, and it was very magical. And uh, all, all my folks, uh, the, all, all the shooting crew, were totally um, amazed and delighted that they'd had a chance to work on it. It was an amazing, an amazingly good team, and. I know Pat and I used to joke about how it was important that everybody had tunnel vision. It was sort of to settle ourselves down. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it's okay, Jerry and Tom don't have tunnel vision. We'll be fine. You know. <laughs> and you know, uh, Bruce Bratton, our our composer, uh, he just when he when it came time for him to to work our story, he just uh, at that point it was put together enough to where he was really seeing a lot of what the final effect was going to be. And uh, he, he loved being invited into something where he could, could really embrace the emotions of the storyline. At, at the time, he said it was very popular to, for filmmakers to approach him and say, uh, I want you to just do tracks uh, a few minutes and I could slide it anywhere and it would kind of work. And I don't want you to address any particular emotion because then it would need to hit something that happens on the screen. And I just, I just want basically ambience. And I, 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 my invitation to him was the opposite. It's like, I want to feel this journey, this storytelling journey. And uh, so he really, really got into it. And, and I, I remember there was uh, talking about that scene in Umbrellas of Cherbourg where the, uh, where Martin falls in the puddle and, and then she attempts to follow. Um, that was the only time we had a, a moment where we discussed an approach. Most of the time, it's just uh, he would breathe things in, and I would just love it. And we, we we had a spotting session where we just talked emotional chapters, and he went off and created. Um, but there was one point where we just had a little uh, discussion about maybe backing up and trying it again. And it was that scene where the first take of it was very vaudevillian, sort of comedic, uh, in the musical approach. And I, I said, but I, I th remember that she, that this is a romance and this is a moment of parting where they thought they were together and it was a joyous time. And now there's sort of longing again, and it's going back to that. And she was like, Hmm, I don't know. Uh, and, and then, but then he tried it and he went, Oh my gosh, that feels, I really feel it now. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's where it belongs. Uh, but so he would do that kind of shaping of emotion and he just loved being invited to really address uh, the emotions as they happened. And he had brought made an original theme for us and something I know from the technical side, there were so many things the rest of us faced uh, during the shoot, but something that he had to face that he was so proud of with the, with the orchestra was uh, near the end when you're having the sort of sorrowful, goodbyes before the happy reunion at the end. Uh, there's a scene from Casablanca and it's uh, the, you know, here's looking at you kid moment. And um, that 
that original film footage uh, had the dialogue and score uh, as time goes by was was married to it. And we could not strip it out. We could not get separate dialogue and music stems. And so he had to do the daunting task of writing his Cinebagique melody and then having it seamlessly join a little reprise of As Time Goes By to play his orchestra with that orchestra and then segue back without you hearing any hiccup into taking the, the, the lead with the Cinebagique theme again. And uh, so I, and it's sort of, the overall thing, it was just a moment, but it was a particular challenge for him. And he was so happy when that, uh, when that was just sort of graceful and seamless, as you said, Ellen, uh, by the end. And then he told me a little story later. He said that he was, uh, he said he liked to just put on, uh, had a collection of various composers that he admired, uh, including his own tracks, of course. Um, but he put it on random play and he just said when he was going around the house, he just liked to have some of that in the background and he said that something caught his ear and he was like oh that's that's an interesting piece who did that and he ran over to look at his computer and it was his own track from Cinemagique and he was like oh uh-huh. it's like we were in he said I was in such a different headspace when I was writing that that it's I even surprised myself so uh, I thought that was that was pretty cool and, and Ellen and, and uh, Tom did you did you have the pleasure of going to the actual theater venue to the space during our no run. no re- regrettably and it, it was literally uh on my hit list for for years and i i i used to go to, to uh, europe quite a, quite often and I, I did a huge job for volkswagen and i was in and out of in and out of um uh paris uh numerous times but you know what can i say lame excuse no excuse <laughs> i totally uh, did not uh, make that trip out out to the park because I recall that was um, Disney Paris is kind of uh, on the out on the outer ring, right? It it is quite far out. Yes, yeah. It, it never quite coincided with because I never had a full day and I blah blah. blah. Hey, you know, I'm sorry for making all these excuses. Let's just say I didn't see it and I will always regret it. Now on that topic, uh, are there any plans afoot to release it in a different um, format or not, not a different format, but I will like have to be a different format, yeah. but a, a different way. I do not know, but I was just going to say that, that, uh, uh, you know, going out for, for the opening of that park, I did have the opportunity to see it on that trip a few times with an audience. Uh, and I, th- I think I've seen it like five times in in the space, but mainly around one extended trip. And then I was, uh, it, you know, then there were for like 14 years le- after that where I did not get to see it. But uh, there, you know, the magic you were talking about that we all felt, and we we did have a wonderful cast and crew screening where we all got to see what it amounted to, except for the in th- theater effects. Mm-hmm. But I got to say, it, you know, sitting amongst the audience in the venue. Um, there were these extra things that even heightened the magic more. And like one of them was in every show when the host says, you know, welcome and, uh, and you think you're going to see a, a Valentine to a century of cinema, a clip show and ask you to please uh, shut off your phones so as not to disturb your neighbors. And then the film starts and you think you are watching the clip show and a phone rings. 
And the guy is like, hello. And everybody in the audience is like shushing him. And there were some people really <laughs> in the early days where they're like, oh, idiot, cowboy, you know, like these things. It's <laughs> like totally. And we had to have a security person ready to defend them in case they got attacked. But <laughs> to see that happen in sort of a, the theater of it all, in addition to the movie, uh, it just there were there was this extra sort of uh, adrenaline that was happening in the space, and then there was a little that magic moment where he's on the screen and he's physically actually casting a real shadow, and Julie Delpy and and Marco Leonardi playing the sheik, where he's that they all stop acting on the screen and are annoyed by this guy that's making noise in the theater, and Marco tries to punch him, literally punch him through the screen. And it doesn't work because the screen is in between and he shakes his hand. Ouch, that hurt. But when you have this tiny little human really casting a shadow on the screen and these giant projected people trying to do something about it and being frustrated, the storytelling just was so engaging. And then, of course, the magic moment where Alan Cumming casts his magic out at that person and the physical person is actually enveloped in a plume of smoke and then disappears and I got to work with uh, David Steinmeier, I believe is his name, who was one of uh, David Copperfield's uh, illusionist engineers. And uh, uh, it was great collaborating with him in the early, early days to, to figure out how some of that stuff could even happen. But when the person physically disappears in the audience space and reappears in the movie, it's just it was such a delightful thing. And, and then at the end... When and, and I'd say this gave me goosebumps, even though we had together, our whole team had built this frame by frame, pixel by pixel, it still gave me goosebumps as a magic moment at the end when, you know, the, the two of them are separated. He has come out, Martin has come out through the sword rip and he has invited her to follow. And when she tries to follow him, the screen snaps shut in her face and they're trapped her inside the screen, him outside the screen, and they're touching hands through, and it's just this sad separation. You know, when Alan Cumming takes pity on them, and he creates uh, just he creates a doorway in the in the screen. It just appears as a visual film effect, but when the act, when the physical actor tries it, it actually works, and he puts his head through, and his head is projected, and his body is physical. And the audience will really seem to love that moment of half projected, half physical person. And then goes in, closes the door, and they're about to embrace. And he, he gives her a gesture like, wait, not yet. And he reaches over and peels the door off the screen, wads it up, and throws it away. And there's no hole left in the screen. I mean, that that gave me goosebumps. Even though, I, and Tammy, I could show you sometime, I still have the the home video footage where I went into after effects and mocked up that, that moment on my, in my kitchen, in my dining room, I have like me doing the first, like, what if we did this? Um, but when it was everybody, but had gone through the final production had made it magical. And, and you had the physical aspect of an actor really doing it in front of 1100 people. And he could walk up the door and there was no hole in the screen. I just, uh, I got goosebumps. It was, uh, it really was magic, uh, sort of exponential when it was in the real space. So, uh, so I love being able to see it there a few times. I'm, I'm still upset that it's not there. And I, I do want to agree with you, Tom. I would love to see it 
you know, make its way to the United States. I think Jerry probably has like 1500 texts from me saying, hey, so are we still going to have it here in the US? <laughs> I feel bad, but I just can't help it. I love the film. And I, I, I really am sad because I had planned a trip this year to go to Disneyland Paris just to see the film. I really didn't. I like I wanted to see the rest of the park, but I really wanted to see this film. And so it's going to be replaced by something else. I think a tribute to the the Disney films overall. But um, yeah, I always thought it, that would be a perfect thing for uh, the U.S. states parks, you know, Disney parks. But again, Jerry was explaining, and I guess, you know, Ellen and Tom, you can commend this, but the fact is, you know, a lot of copyright, and that's a major issue, and uh, it's not 2002 anymore. <laughs> so uh, is that? do you think that's the main issue at this point, or? You know, uh, it, it's likely a, a, a big issue, and, uh, you know, it's funny in anticipating, not knowing how successful Ellen and the team would be in securing copyrights. Back in the beginning, we actually uh, planned uh, alternative paths for the original film. Uh, so, oh, sorry for that noise. Um, the, the, the plan was, obviously, at the film as you saw it. But we thought, well, what if you could not get the rights to certain movies. Well, I, I went ahead and did the concepts and storyboards for uh, just sort of a, a nod to a genre, like our own Western, our own film noir, uh, uh, something that would be the, the way to stitch into the next film. Uh, so on, and, and we actually did shoot, uh, Ellen and Tom, as you recall, we, we, we did at one time shoot uh, two versions of the Western we shot one that if we had to create it entirely our own and we didn't get the, the copyright uh, permissions, to hide we were it. ready to do that. And, and thankfully they did come through and we could, uh, yeah. we could do the scene as, as originally planned. Uh, but that was, and then also something, just a little trivia is uh, before we completely committed and everybody thought, well, this is the film we'll probably make. We're all in love with it. But, you know, the uh, Disney folks said, well, why don't we just think of, uh, before we commit, just come up with some other ideas and just see if we've done due diligence to possibilities. And so I think there were six writers for six weeks. And um, uh, I came, we came back in and had sort of a round table where people said, well, maybe you could do this, maybe you could do that, different ideas put on the table. And then uh, I think it was Tom Fitzgerald turned and said, well, do you have anything to add, Jerry? And I said, well, you know, I was at a coffee shop and I was doing a little sketch. And, um, you know, I was thinking the, the Red Balloon is a, a wonderful classic French uh, film. And uh, what if we had a balloon get loose in the theater and then somebody chases it into the movie and and uh, our balloon meets the Red Balloon and, uh, you know, the, the older, like a 19, 20 year old older sister of the kid who lost the balloon has gone to chase it. And then there's a romance with her and sort of like, Oh my God, that, that could actually work. So, so out of that whole effort, the little sketchbook thing actually turned into a finished story reel where I went through the entire movie. Like what if it was someone chasing a balloon that got loose and we actually mocked up a, a physical test where we did project um, safety last as uh, which we did in 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 the final version of Cinemagique as well, but we used one of the windows 
to have our physical balloon that gets loose in the theater drift through a window and go into the movie that way. And uh, so anyway, there was a whole storyline that was around that. And, uh, and we had a lot of fun with it. And then we had two things to compare. And people went, oh, the romance of the original is, uh, is where we should go. So I was, I was happy to, uh, to explore an alternative and then to uh, a big sigh of relief to go back to the original inspiration and, uh, and do plan A. It's just something that if you are a film lover, it's, it's what you've always dreamed of, you know, stepping into those films <laughs> and being a part of that experience. And it perfectly encapsulates the entire experience of being a film goer. So I can't thank you guys enough for doing this film. You know, even though I haven't seen it in person, it's, it's, it's really one of my favorite things that has ever been, you know, released by Disney. So thank you guys for all your hard work on this, on this project. I hope that someday we might get some more behind the scenes footage or some extra behind the scenes, you know, photos, because you guys did a heck of a lot of work just to get this film done. It was done in like six, nine months or. Well, I, I was on it for three years. Yeah. um, Yeah. And, uh, but, but our, our what was our shoot? Uh, Ellen and Tom, was it was it nineteen days or it was pretty something like 20, that? It was a it was wow. a very uh, 20, very trimmed down schedule. But I mean, everything we needed, we had. But uh, as I alluded earlier to, um, Ellen's uh, uh, the whole production team really. But the planning was went to the kind of efficiency that led to great shots and great moments and every hour of the day being used as opposed to the experience that some of us have had on other projects where despite the best uh, plans, um, you, you look at the uh, 90 day schedule that you finished and, and when you see the, uh, the, the final cut, uh, 15 whole days are missing. <laughs> or the equivalent of almost our whole schedule right. was not used <laughs> because right. there was a lot of fat in there. Wow. So this was not fat. There was no no fat in this. Um, it was all content, and it was all I I can only say this, uh, Ellen, and it's heartfelt. I ordinarily any any DP will feel a certain amount of pressure, and they will be the first <laughs> to hear the clock ticking. But you you had. Pl- planned this in such a way and given us the resources that we needed that I never felt that it was daunting. I never felt that it was something we couldn't do. I'm um, really glad to so hear that. Thank you for that. Okay. I do remember there was a day when there was some threat that there was going to be wind kicking up in the desert. And I was like, no, no, no <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> we, got, we got through that. So that was the good. very idea of wind in the desert. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> and I, and, and and Ellen, I remember you and, and Pat Churchill um, just commenting. And I, I again, this was a testament to how how sort of uh, you you didn't succumb to pressure uh, or make us feel the pressure. But uh, I remember I remember Pat and you talking about this, uh, and and Pat just overtly said this equates directly to the biggest pictures I've ever done. Um, with the ambition per day of what's being accomplished. And, you know, you, you guys had worked with Spielberg yeah. and Coppola and, and 
Lucas and on and on. And, and I hadn't. And so I was saying I have not done a great, big, huge film. And Paul and Pat said to me, Ellen, now you've done a great, big, huge film. Right, because she had, I mean, her, her list is a lot of very, very big films. Um, but for her to just say, by the way, just so you guys know, this equates to the, the biggest projects in, in Hollywood. And, uh, and, and that she didn't panic or go like, oh, my God, bring in, bring in, uh, you know, Spielberg to take over for you or whatever. You know, she's like, no, I trust you guys to do it. And you were very flexible. It was like. Jerry, I'm not sure we're going to get high noon. And, and you were like, okay, how soon are we going to know? And I'm like, I don't know. And you would be like, okay, I'll write something else just in case. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes. I the tap dance. The tap dance. Yes, the tap dance was amazing. There was a lot of planning in regard to schedule. There was a lot of planning ahead. And we did have six stages full of sets. And, you know, carefully changing out one set for another um, quietly so that not to disturb the set two doors down that we were going to be shooting in. So it was, there was a bit of that kind of footwork that was sort of interesting. Yep. But it did all it did all work out, which was quite and, extraordinary. And controlling the weather, sometimes forcing the weather to be what you wanted. <laughs> like the, the rainy the rainy set in uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg yeah. was all indoors. That yes. was all interior set with the rain. I have three cinema chic questions I thought I'd ask you guys. So the first one is, if you could pick your co-star, let's say you had a Martin Short to your opposite, which co-star, any film star, would you like to choose? Well, I'll just say uh, Jack Lemmon, just because on my bucket list, I always wanted to work with Jack Lemmon. I think he was a genius. And uh, if I could could use my magic wand and have a moment to, uh, to hang out with him, that would have been a dream. All right, so I'm in love with Mark Rylance, so I would have to say Mark Mark Rylance. <laughs> well, I guess it falls to me now to <clears throat> to give an answer to that question. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to evade it, and and I'm I, I do Could so animated? in the following context. <laughs> in the following context, I am in love with acting, with the profession, and I have. Like all of us, I mean, I've, I've worked with so many wonderful actors that um, I, I can think like it wouldn't be a really uh, good fit. But I mean, how, how great would it be to cast uh, uh, Lawrence Olivier in, in the part? But, you know, he's yeah. a guy, so I wouldn't mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the fact is that anybody who gets into this line of work without a healthy not only respect for, but love of acting is in the wrong business because ultimately what we do, what I do as a photographer is to create the, the moment in the movie for the writer and the director, but I'm, it's, it's being, it's populated by people, people who we watch on set. We, we light with tremendous care. We um, do everything in our power to make the moment work. But not until we see them on the screen, and I've, I've had this happen any number of times, I will be standing right next to the, uh, the camera during a take or maybe in my chair at Video Village. But in any case, I was there. I lived that shot and breathed it until we put it in, into the can with a printed take. Um, and yet, 
when I see it in dailies, a whole new experience, one where the character lives and breathes. And it's, and it's magic that I have never ceased to be amazed at. Our question too, so I don't forget, um, there have yes. been so many films that have come out since 2002. Of course, they updated the film and inserted, you know, different films for the door sequence. But if you mm-hmm. guys could insert a new film that has mm. come out since 2002, what scene or what film would you like to have inserted in the film? <laughs> Gosh, I almost feel like uh, like the Game of Thrones dragon should come through and uh, threaten <laughs> Marty and Julie. <laughs> Checky Cario versus the Game of Thrones dragons. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I uh, of course, I'm a little bleary eyed because we've been watching Academy screeners for a couple of months now until blue in the face, you know, and and. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I apologize. I'm, I'm virtually brain dead. But nevertheless, when I think of a film that uh, that I found very powerful, uh, and 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 that has iconography that I could see this somehow weirdly being plugged in, that would be The Darkest Hour. There's so many. No, I don't. I like I like that one though. And our final cinema G question, which overall is: the film ends with Martin and Julie going to their happily ever after, which is the city of Oz. So, if you had to choose your happily ever after from any different film, what would it be? Well, I would choose Oz because that's why I chose it for cinema G. <laughs> 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 that that is, uh, I, I love the idea of going going over that hill with the. Uh, the poppies and like the poppies being the hint, like, oh my gosh, I wonder if this means what I hope it means. And there's the Emerald City. Um, just I, I had, as a kid, I just so felt like there was there was so much heart and warmth in in Judy Garland's role and surrounded by the, the sort of uh, uh, eccentric family of characters. It's like they're all sort of damaged in some way and she pulls them together and and by the end, they're they sort of graduated to a, a, a forever family out of all the broken pieces, and uh, I just have always felt like there's a an incredible heart and warmth to to that aspect. And so I had hoped to that we would get the rights, which thankfully we did to have that be the destination. So uh, so I, I take dibs on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I would have to answer g- generically, uh, and I would have to cite. A film that was uh, quoted and and uh, emulated in in our movie uh, Titanic, uh, which I loved uh, and which I um, found on many levels just uh, a terrific piece of uh, showmanship. However, I can tell you one thing: I wouldn't do. I wouldn't choose a scene um, where we have to end the movie with the. Um, uh, the, the, where, they, where they drown, where people drown. You know? <laughs> yes, I would like yes. the protagonists uh, to at least to get a, a life uh, preserver or something. Yes, on the bow <laughs> of the ship when they're leaning into the uh, to the sunset. That's that's a much yeah. better moment. Oh, so <laughs> drowning is a yeah, it's a downer. No pun intended. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I, I'll I'll, t- I'll take Oz. I think Oz is a good destination. Well, I appreciated being on the journey with you, uh, uh, both of you, and the rest of our team as well. And I, I felt like it, you know the the magic 
couldn't have happened without the combination of elements that we all brought. But I, I, I watched just as a refresher, uh, before jumping on the line, I watched the that, that entire last show as uh, somebody had posted it on YouTube, and uh, you know I I I choked up near the end with uh, with them together embracing uh, and the audience when when I heard the audience feel that moment and they not only are plotting mm-hmm. but rely like going woo you know it's like they're back together and the embrace and it goes to the gun with the wind to the crimson color and the music and you go well. And all those people felt it, and you go and almost almost seventeen million people felt that moment of reassurance and togetherness and love. It's just uh, it's 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 nice to know that 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 happened. Well, much credit to um, to the folks at Disney, which is a Absolutely. studio that I have been, uh, uh, you know, has been iconic. Uh, to me since I was a little kid growing up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, in the projection booth at the Times Theater where my <laughs> dad worked. Uh, and, um, you know, that was my childhood, um, both both the animated and the live-action Disney product. And uh, it, it, it comes not as a surprise. I mean, this decision to make the film, to back you in the making of this film in the way that it got made, and uh, Michael Eisner going to bat for the uh, seemingly impossible to acquire music rights. To me, that that is like it falls into line to what my image of the studio has always been, not to mention numerous trips to both Disneyland's with my kids when they were little and secretly like um, they're getting pretty sophisticated, but we'll, would it be okay if we went to, um, let's just, let's just do a, it's a small, small world. Uh, <laughs> one more time. You know, what, what a pleasure and yet not a surprise that it had this long lifestyle, uh, life span and that you were able to get support for the slightly longer version. Um, but I must say cinema chic is much is very close to my heart. That was, it was an amazing project for me. I really can't thank all three of you enough for joining me for this call because I think that I I was so nervous because I I really couldn't find a lot of information except on Jerry's website, which I do want to plug because there are a lot of behind-the-scenes photos Jerry did post at jerryrees.com. I'll link them in the show notes below. But, you know, this this film is, is... I, I just adore it. So thank you, all three of you, for your hard work and for being a part of this episode. I really appreciate it. Thanks, thank Tammy. You. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you.